Hi, I'm Billy Shore. My guest today is Dan Barber from Blue Hill at Stone Barn. This is the moment to fight back. Many ways to do that that are quiet and, and for one way, as, you, is, as Michael Pollan has said, you know, you vote with your fork three times a day. And that's exactly right. It's a very powerful vote. And we all need to stand up in the middle of, of this moment to, to protect uh, and defend what we've built. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food and passion and making a difference in the world. And what a time in our world today to be having this conversation. And we couldn't be having it with anybody better than Dan Barber, the chef at Blue Hill and at Stone Barns, uh, author of The Third Plate, uh, just an amazing thought leader when it comes to food and our food supply uh, in this country. And uh, Dan is going through what I'm sure what every chef and restaurateur is going through in this moment of COVID-19. So I'm especially grateful, Dan, that you would just take a little bit of time to talk to us about how you're dealing with this and how it's impacted your thinking. So uh, welcome to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Uh, Dan, just let's just start by how are you doing? How's your team? I'm sure this has been a wrenching 30 to 45 days. Um, Just just give us a sense of just what it's been like for you personally. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know if I can add to what people have been reading out there as, as this being a, you know, a moment of, of incredible loss and, and, and sadness. Um, and what makes it most um, disconcerting is that in the you know, midst of my own personal feeling of loss, there's just a tremendous amount of pain and anguish and emergency happening around us. So it feels minuscule compared to, you know, the the more global world that we're living in right now. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a game changer. We, we, we tried to pick up from that closure and start something new. So I've, I've had my head stuck in a, instead of in a walk, I've been sticking it in a production box to, to get this team what's left of it. Anyway, we have about, 30, 30 of a 200 plus team left and we're packing boxes day and night um, to make a go at this. Wow. So you had uh, between your two restaurants, about 200 members of the team. And I, and I guess like everybody else, uh, 170 of them or so had to be at least furloughed yeah. Uh, yeah. or laid off. Yeah. And these are folks, I'm sure some of them are folks that have been with you for a long time. Yes. Yeah. Very long. We've kept, we've kept a core group, you know, but the whole thing was like, you know, it's, it's that you, you as a chef, and I know you know this. You just you, or, or as a business person, or anything, you, you you work your life, or you know, people forget, I think, or or neglect to mention enough that part of what you're working towards is to work with the kind of people you want to work with. I mean, that's that's right. I mean, that's the payoff. It's more. It's better than the money. It's like you you get to hand select uh, or self select, as it were, when when you when you get to a certain level that is just. Um, more gratifying than anything that happens to me in the career. And so I got to this point just in the last couple of years, really. I mean, it's a, it's a late inning thing. It's as it is for most chefs, you know, it just, okay, there it is. And I, I had, you know, I have a team of 46 cooks and most of them from all over the world. And so to end, to end that was to say goodbye to something that, that was, was, you know, a lifetime of work to build, not to say that it couldn't come back, but to think along those lines right now just seems, seems oh, too much for me. 
Wow. That, that's, you know, we've actually talked to a number of chefs and restaurateurs over the last few weeks and nobody has said it quite like that. That's such a poignant uh, way to think about it. It's, it's really moving to hear you talk about it because that is, you know, and I, I, I hadn't put words to that feeling before, but yeah, getting to the point where you are working with the folks you want to work with and you've built your company and your culture and you've had the luxury of being able to get the best people to come work with you um, and to have that go away is, Wow, that that's I know that yeah. night, the night uh, we closed, I had this dream. Uh, we've all had very vivid dreams over the last uh, month or so, but but I had a dream that 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 the that I was a long haul trucker or driving in a long haul truck, and and I just looked in the rearview mirror, and everything on the truck was emptying out on the highway, and I couldn't stop the truck, and then it just, and it and it's it's that it's that everything that I had stacked into you know, to deliver into the future was now being unloaded. And once the, the gate of the, of the tra- trailer had been unlocked and, and let loose, that was it. And my cooks were all, you know, at that moment, just immediately took flights back home. And I was just like, every email and text I was getting was like, I'm on a, I'm at the airport. I'm on a flight to Sao Paulo. I'm at the airport. I'm on a flight to Japan. Yeah. I was just like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't mean for that to happen. And then, you know, and, you, and that's gone. And it just, in, in the span of 24 hours, just boom. Anyway, so here we are. Uh, and Dan, talk, talk, talk about the box that you mentioned. You've got a, a core staff left that's working on these boxes. How, uh, what did you pivot to and how's that, how's that working right now? Yeah, well, the next, it, so, so after I woke up from that dream, I got some, some pretty frantic uh, texts and emails from, from, uh, not cooks, but suppliers, you know, they were farmers, farmers that I've worked with for 20 years, farmers that we've supported, farmers that we've grown up with, as one farmer put it to me, uh, talk about poignant, you know, and, and they, they were like, well, you know, my, my pigs at the slaughterhouse or my, uh, you know, greenhouse radishes are picked. <laughs> it's not like you can turn that faucet off um, unless you just don't return the calls. Uh, so that's what launched uh, this box program. We called it resourced because I didn't just want to be in the box business. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the hell. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, to be honest with you. It's like, it's a whole new, you know, it's like telling a dentist to become a, you know, a heart surgeon. It's like, I don't know how to do this. And so I, I just, I, I was a desperate move, you know, not a conscious plan. We just wanted to, to get these farmers some revenue and, and to, to deliver on the promise we had, which was like we contract a lot of these guys and, and, and women over the years. And in many ways, we, we've, we've forced a lot of them to supply us 100%, you know, because I'm like other chefs, I get really greedy for the stuff that I like. I don't want to share it with other chefs. So I, you know, we, we commit to 100% of their farm or whatever they're growing. And then, you know, it's not really right. I mean, it's definitely not right. There's no, there's no planetary system where it's right to say, you know, see you later because I, I had to try something. And so this is what we did. We, we went into the business of doing boxes. And like I said, I didn't want to just do delivery boxes because, because while there's, there's a lot of pain going on around us, the mere amount that I can produce in a safe kitchen like ours is, is, is terribly small. Uh, and, and, and when I say in an environment like this, I mean, we, we have a very high protocol, which is six feet. Like nobody can even cross somebody in the hallway. So we're, we're very tight on how we operate. And I wanted that established right away. And so it just limits the amount of people that we can have in the kitchen at one time. We're at three shifts now. We do morning, afternoon, night, and we're, we're packing these boxes, but we're doing it out of this idea of resource, which is, which is the idea of the, the, the name of the company, but it's resource 
education. So it's resource with a capital E D at the end. And it's meant to it's meant to convey, you know, some sustenance of the moment and, and nutrition and, and and flavor, of course, but but more it's meant to to convey the idea that, you know, there's a there's a neural network of farmers that we that we, us, but also just anybody who loves to go out to eat is connected to too, whether you know it or not. And that network has been been shattered. And the effects of that are something that I wanted to look into. So we started resource in part to do these boxes, in part to create a consciousness through education about the kind of people that produce our food and the kind of people we want producing our food, let's put it that way, the kind of people who are diverse and mostly organic and, and responsive to soil health and, and nutrition and therefore, you know, great flavor. And so these are these are treasures, man. You did like, you know, everyone says farmers are treasures and they are. But these particular farmers are like the, the, the elites, you know, they're, they're the special forces and for, for the environment and the ecology. And, you know, you don't want to see that disappear. And, and what I've, so I wanted to launch something where we would have some uh, money, potentially raise some money through the nonprofit Stone Barn Center, who's our partner in this, to, to investigate, you know, what, what is the landscape here? What does this look like for, for these farmers? You know, I can tell you that they're in trouble, but that doesn't mean anything if I don't have data attached to it. So, so that went, that just started like the second day in informal conversations I was having uh, driving from Stone Barns to Blue Hill Farm, which is my farm in, in Western Massachusetts, my family farm. And I just had two hours. I was just calling around to farmers. And, you know, what's going on? What, how does this look for you? And I just, I, I mean, it was, it was like, it was like listening to the greatest podcast you ever listened to. It just it was just amazingly interesting how some of these farmers overnight pivoted to retail sales when they didn't have it before. And some down the street couldn't find a retail market and like were sitting there not knowing what to do. And then, you know, other, it just was amazing all over the place. So, so then I just put some resources to it and, and raised a little bit of money to see if we could get this uh, into some kind of form that raises uh, awareness and, and, and that's where we are today. We're at 120 farms, and uh, we're, we're headed to 120 farms with interviews and data. And what you know, what does this look for us? Uh, come come the summer when the when the you know when the harvest hits, if restaurants aren't at 50 percent of what they're doing now, which I think is conservative, because I don't think restaurants will be at even 50 percent in sales, and 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 if farmers markets are 50 percent of what they're doing, you know, this time last year, which I think is conservative, because I don't think. They're going to let people hoard, you know, they're going to let people line up at farmer's markets on a Saturday, 65,000 people at Union Square. That's not going to happen. So, so you put that together. What is your, you know, what's it look like for you, farmer? And the answer across the board, I mean, I'm not even talking like most of the times, like 95% of the respondents are like bankruptcy. That's it for us. And that's, that's a catastrophe. You know, that's, a, that's you and I sitting on the shoreline watching a tsunami come in. And, and, you know, it's hard to talk about tsunamis that are coming because you go, we're in the middle of one, you know, as we speak. And, but, but this one is the kind of thing that, that you won't ever get back. I mean, you, you could, we could bemoan what happened to restaurants and, and argue whether or not there's a culture here that's, that's going to return. Um, and that'd be interesting conversation, but they, but the conversation about these kind of farmers not recurring, returning, well, that's, that's a generational disaster and, and. You know, we don't want to have that happen because we don't want to leave that to, to the next generation. That's a that's something that we could avoid if we get awareness about it quickly and we give these farmers the bridge to bridge in terms of money and in terms of awareness that can get them to the other side. And I, I just think that's probably the best thing that I can do in this moment beyond the hospitals that we're feeding with these boxes and beyond the school kids we're feeding these boxes. Just I think this might be the most long lasting thing that 
I can do if, if, if I can muster some attention towards it. So that's what I'm focused on. But Dan, I, you know, I was going to ask you, you know, most of us have an image of farmers, but truth be told, most of us probably have never met one. Uh, can you talk about a farmer? You, you, you have the, the privilege of knowing many of them. And as you're talking, uh, I'm trying to get a picture of a farmer who's like, how much, uh, land does he or she farm? How long have they been at it? What's the, what's their life like? If there's somebody that you can tell us about, you probably know these folks intimately. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a guy that comes to mind that really kickstarted my consciousness. I'm, like I'm speaking like, you know, this was a thought that came to my mind alone. It wasn't, it was the phone calls and texts that I got from the farmers about their, their deliveries. And, and the first one I got just, just, I might mention many to you, of course, but the first one that comes to my mind is guy, even Evan Prophet. He's in He's in um, uh, in northern Vermont, and he drives his pheasants down to us once a week. Uh, uh, it's about a four-hour drive, so he does an eight-hour round-trip thing to, to deliver to us each week, 50 pheasants. And um, they, these things, you know, I, I, like they're raised in an environment that is essentially wild. Um, he's, a great, he's a very eccentric, brilliant young guy, and he, he used to hunt uh pheasants with his grandfather in scotland or something and you know he always had the taste of that wild wild game and, and he wanted to he believed that you could mimic that through domesticated pheasants and so that's what he set out to do and he treats the pheasants like they're wild but he has them in this big netted thing in his backyard essentially it's a farm but it's you know an acre or half an acre netted and he plants this intense diversity of of grains and grasses and pulses and that the pheasant are eating as they fly up and down the netting of this acre. Uh, and, you know, they, they think they're wild and they, they, they think they found Garden of Eden, so they're not trying to get out of the netting. If you remove the netting, they wouldn't go anywhere. Um, but, but he has it just to keep out coyotes, actually. And what the pheasant do is they feel so comfortable and, and happy and, and they're fed so well that they um, are, are, are spectacularly, like, you, like you've never had um, a wild game like this in your life and it's domesticated, so it's replicable. And the thing that I, you know, found so inspired about his thing is that it's, it's a farm, domesticated farm, it's agriculture, but it's really mimicking nature. And that's the best kind of agriculture. It's the ones that we, we you know, we, we, we have a contract with nature where we try and disrupt um, uh, how she works uh, uh, with the greatest uh, attention and, and care. And when it comes to animals, but it's the same for vegetables or, or root vegetables, grains, I mean, you, fit, you name it, you know, the, the, the key component to raising really delicious food is to, to, to keep that, that ecological impact and that uh, DNA of an animal intact. And that's what he's done. I just thought it was like, I, I'm trying, I, we've just been working this out with him. He started really with a couple of birds and we helped grow the business and we, we kept paying, you know, incentivizing them to keep growing and giving all the birds, selling all the birds to us and at a fantastic price. But, you know, I knew the I knew what was going into it. Like I wasn't there to make money. He was there to just basically break even. But we are working on trying to mimic this kind of system everywhere. And it's a great parable for what, you know, what is important in any kind of farming. And I said, you know, vegetable farming too. I mean, the best farmers we deal with are the ones that are mimicking nature and not using chemicals and allowing weeds to develop and allowing, you know, rotations to increase soil health, to give you the kind of food that really, you know, gives you jaw dropping flavor. So the same concept. And, and these were the farmers, these ones were the ones that I wanted to most protect because they leave us a generation of knowledge leaves us and they, I don't think they come back. So that's, that's where I'm, where my drive is. 
And so have you got pheasant in these boxes now? Yeah, man. You know, each pheasant is like $90. Oh <laughs> my God. Once you break it down, it's like, it's crazy. It's crazy. But I always felt like it was an investment in the future. And I don't know where this thing was going to go. And we were, we were along with him writing a, a script for other people to do it at a larger scale and, and with more efficiencies, you weren't driving eight hours to drop it off, you know, that kind of thing that, that, and, I, and again, I felt like it could admit you could write something on this and, 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 and use video to show how, how this kind of approach to animal agriculture is the way to be in the world. You know, it's the same with, with beef. I mean, you take that principle and you just say, give a cow what it wants to eat and it'll be happy and it'll fatten and it'll give you the kind of flavor steaks and hamburgers that we want with the kind of nutrition that we want without the, the, the laden fat and without the environmental impacts that our, you know, our meat industry is so uh, uh, invested in destroying it. So, so, you know, it's all there. And then that's what's in, in this, this group of farmers, that, that kind of knowledge and practice, practice like boots on the ground doing it. It's not somebody like me just pontificating. It's them actually doing it and showing, you know, they're like, they're like lighthouses, you know, they show a way forward and you keep those people disappear. You're, you're, you're cooked. So here we go. Well, and so, and we, and as you talk about what you described as this kind of, you know, potential generational disaster, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, well, thank goodness Dan is doing this with Evan, but there's got to be thousands of Evans out there and there aren't thousands of, there aren't thousands of Dan barbers, right? In every region of this country, there's, there's these people that chefs have chefs, you know, to credit, it's not me. It's, it, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to have a few real bright stars in this group that I'm mentioning, but that's every chef has a, has some connection with people like Evan that in their own region and stories to tell about it that um, that I don't think people are aware that those things are dis- that will disappear because and I say that with confidence only because it was a funny thing I don't know if we've ever done a survey before I haven't and I learned so much because my first interviews casual conversations with all these farmers was like pretty bright except for Evan it was pretty bright it was like they had pivoted to to retail customers and you know because people were hoarding it was like it was like three, five X sales. Uh, and people couldn't keep, you know, farmers couldn't keep stuff in stock. And it was at the, you know, a lot of cold storage stuff at the end of the year. And so it wasn't, you know, it's not like immediate disaster, which is how the media sort of painted it. That's not right. The disaster is when you ask a follow-up question, which is what I got around to realizing because nobody was recognizing that, that restaurants weren't returning. Um, uh, not even chefs, not even me. You know, I'm having trouble recognizing that. Like we're not returning to what we were. And and so to say that your restaurant sales down 50% and markets down 50% is not hyperbolic. You know, that's I think that's reality. I think that's actually conservative. And if that's conservative, well, where, where does that put you, farmer? And then they, and then the answer is to cross the board. Well, I'd be bankrupt. <laughs> but 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 then they just there's a silence. There's like, well, do you actually think that's what's going to happen? Like, yeah, man, I, that is what's happening, and we're we're about to to feel that. And, you know, if we don't act on it now, these, these people have no uh, cash flow to, to deal with and they won't take loans. And, you know, it's not the culture is not to take a loan from the government. It's not like that. It's, it's, it's got to be immediate action. And it's actually an opportunity, I think, to develop a kind of system, you know, a, a regional network anyway, that is more resilient. You know, it's funny, Billy. It's like if I had talked to you two months ago, you, you'd forgive me for saying, that the farm to table network, the good food network, for which you've been a you know a supporter and advocate for your 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 whole career, you know, and we all have been. I mean, it's it's where the best food comes from. But we would say, you know, that's the way to think about the future of food. You know, it's not these big mega farms. It's not industrial agriculture. All this stuff's going away. 
And what we're looking at is a future where, you know, it's a direct connection with the farmer. Then comes COVID and what it reveals as it reveals so brilliantly is weaknesses. And it did not spare farm to table. You know, the, 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 the thing that farmed that, that the good food movement hung its hat on was the direct connection. You shake the hand of the farmer that grew your food. And that's the, that's the strongest chain possible in a food chain. Well, it turns out that's not right. <laughs> Where it's actually exquisitely vulnerable because you actually can't shake the hand of the farmer because you're going to get a virus. So you, you have to, that whole chain gets broken down overnight. And that shows you that the answer to the future is not as simple as we might have imagined. It's, and what I come away with is what I'm, what I sit in the middle of every day, which is I looked around yesterday in the afternoon and I was like, I'm not a chef anymore. I'm a food processor. That's what I do. I, I over here is the guy who's taking the ramps from this morning and he's fermenting them and pickling them. And over there is the guy who's breaking down one of those grass fed beef animals I was talking about. He's going to, we're going to make some charcuterie. We're going to make some sausage. We're going to cure and smoke and dry and, and also make some fresh cuts. And over there, there's a person, you know, doing the, 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 uh, uh, milk from Blue Hill Farm that we're, we're going to make into these quick cheeses. I mean, all every 360 around me, I'm a food processor, but I shouldn't be the food processor. We should have regional food processing. You know, we should have these people who uh, we should be investing in the kind of infrastructure that takes great food like the one from Evan, our, our pheasant guy and all the others, and turns it into to the kind of food processing that adds value, nutrition, deliciousness, and revenue. And our conception, westernized or American conception of, of of food processing is that it strips and denudes and denatures and denutrifies and makes something not only not delicious, but unpalatable. But that doesn't have to be that way. That's an American understanding of food processing. We need to return to what cultures and civilizations figured out for thousands of years, which is which is fermenting and pickling and milling and 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 all the other processes, malting and 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 distilling all those things that that bring the farmer's value into the system and it also is resilient it's a little inefficient because you don't have some you know big hog dude in in the midwest milling your grains for you into white flour that's true so it's going to be more expensive but it's resilient in the sense that the next time you know a shock or a pandemic or whatever hits us there's resiliency in the system to, to soak up that shock and right now even the farm to table movement and its simple chain is, is at a loss. So Dan, what you're talking about there, when you say I'm not a chef anymore, I'm a food processor, obviously a very provocative statement. And I'd read a, another provocative statement of yours in, um, I guess, Time Magazine a week or so ago. Uh, and you were talking about what I think of as, uh, you know, the, I guess the potentially even darker side of this is, I think you said, you know, big food was on the rope, and now big food is back in terms of the kind of processed big food that, you know, we always thought farm to table was going to compensate for. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I was just talking to a food executive this morning. I mean, the guy was just like, you know, he was like, we're in it again. Um, and all, you know, a, a month ago, just as I said, you, we wouldn't have faulted for saying farm to table was the future. Well, the, you would have said the, the big ag, big food person was on the decline. I mean, all the numbers were pointing to the end of, big big food as we know it anyway that's not means they totally disappear but but there was a bifurcation there was a, a turning in the back and the aisles on the on the anything that was processed and uh, multiple ingredients and food without a story food without you know people are just getting too smart and the trend was i mean trend was following the organic trend it was just growing 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 and you know that was very emboldening to the people who who 
leading that movement. And I'm, my argument is the chefs were kickstarting that, uh, but and we're the real you know progenitors of the farm to table movement. But what's happened here just in the last month is that the process, the big food industry is 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 doing really well with sales as we know. But they're, they're also digging in, and they have the they have the the, the cash, the, the resilience themselves to dig in. And what he said to me, which scared the bejesus out of me, was like, we're not going to screw this up again. We're going to, we're going to make sure that this generation uh, doesn't let go of the kind of food that is, you know, cheap, easy, and efficient. And I'll, you know, what are you going to say to that? The guy's so off the mark, but, but, you know, he's not an idiot and, and, and he may not, you know, make a delicious dinner. You might not want to have dinner with him, but, but he's smart. And, and what he's basically saying is, is this is the comeback moment and, you know, executives and food, companies are, are, are salivating, uh, at this moment because, because it's not just the moment of people in their homes, which, you know, is, is, is definitely trending towards helping them. It's also a lot of people are cooking more, so it's a mixed bag, but it's how do you, when you come out of this in a depression, which it looks like we're headed towards really fast, but also a culture around food where cleanliness is going to be imbued, I think, into the, into the food culture, you know, how safe is it? How, even though COVID of course has nothing to do with uh, foodborne illnesses or anything, and that's been proven over and over again. It doesn't matter. It's how people feel. And if people feel that going to a restaurant is going to be a little less safe because of distancing, but also because of food preparation, the people in the kitchen, all the people have been getting sick, then it's packaged food and supposedly clean food that's going to end up winning the day. And that could last, that could last years. It could last a generation. And that's what's, that's the scare that there, right there. That's scary. Um, so I think, you know, it's a moment to dig in, uh, to defend, you know, and I keep saying it's like a refugia moment for these cooks who are, and it's what we talk about, we have a, still have a cook meeting twice a week. We used to have one every day for an hour with the cooks, uh, but we do it, we do it twice a week now. And I keep saying the same thing. This is the moment to fight back. And we, we there are many ways to do that that are quiet. And, and for one way is, is, as Michael Pollan has said, you know, you vote with your fork three times a day. And that's exactly right. It's a very powerful vote. And we all need to stand up in the middle of, of this moment to to what, protect uh, and defend what we built, we being the industry, but we being anybody who cares about good food. You've, you've kind of laid down a challenge for all of us when you say you vote with your fork three times a day, or quote Michael Pollan saying that. Um, and I, I and I think you know it uh, it drives home for me that we're all constantly making decisions and choices that matter, and it's so easy to forget that. But a time like this. I think brings that into, I guess, sharper, sharper relief. You, you talked about your your dream, kind of a nightmare, looking through the rearview mirror of that tractor trailer with you know things going off the back of it. When you dream forward a little bit to what it might be like when your restaurants reopen, is that vision starting to crystallize at all? Is it still completely blank slate? How does somebody like you think about it? Because I know you think hard about these things. Yeah, I you know I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what what it what we're going to be facing uh, next week, and so I don't know what we're going to face next month. And I just I, I I'm more interested not so much on when they lift the restriction, but what is the mood uh, of the country? Because for, you know, restaurants, as you know, it's some restaurants can just start turn the key and start back up again uh, and get a workforce, and you can do it. A lot of us cannot do that. Um, because we're built on our supply chain for one. So that's why I'm so nervous about the supply chain, but also just the institutional knowledge of what we're doing is, is now left to me uh, for the most part. Again, we have the core groups. So it's not dystopian. I, I have some 
I have some some positive thoughts, but maybe it's a moment to rethink what a restaurant does. Um, and if you're going to ask me, well, what do you mean by that? Like, we got to check in in a month or two or three or whenever we go into this. And I'll, I, I, th- I like the idea of traffic and transit and, and doing this as I'm going along instead of trying to think in a corner. And that's what the box became. I didn't think the box was going to be a business. It's, it's a business. It's a big, like getting to be kind of a big business under the circumstances of a COVID, meaning that we're really limited. If we weren't limited with spacing, I mean, we could we could be doing a lot. And the, the, the demand's really there. Uh, so and the and the demand for the farmers is you know for our customers really there. So it's all there. And I think you know we could continue to grow this. I don't want to be in the box business. I'm not saying that's where my future is, but there's something here, and maybe we'll see what this moment looks like and take a. A temperature, but I I don't think returning to the paradigm of 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 where we were just a month ago is 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 the right way to reopen a restaurant. And and maybe the restaurant needs to look different. Maybe it needs to have a different kind of purpose in the moment. Uh, but I, I'd like to explore that, and 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 I'm excited to do that. I I you know I don't I'm I'm upset and depressed, but I'm also excited because there's a part of it that you know could could be. Uh, culture affirming as our cultural institutions, museums and theaters and everything else is at such a loss and will be for a, a long time. I loop restaurants in there, as I'm sure you do. They, they're cultural imprints and they've taken over the cultural um, fabric uh, of communities for many years now. And, and maybe we have a role to play that uh, is actually more exciting and more imperative for the future than we would have imagined. So I'd like to keep that option open. Uh, one last thing I'd like to ask you about, and it relates to when, when, when you quote Michael Pollan saying, you know, we vote with our four three times a day. These are choices we can make. What about one of the things that obviously has come out in the whole COVID period is, you know, what's the, what's the role of government? And when you think about supply chain, when you think about how we fix some of the places where the supply chain is breaking, is there stuff that we should know as citizens, as voters, in terms of what we should expect our government to be doing, policies that are right and wrong that we should be advocating for? Yeah, I mean, the policies around food, as you know, are are, are, are miserable in the sense that they, they support and encourage the wrong kinds of things. Uh, the main thing is obviously the biggest swath of that is, is how we feed a cow, because we're talking about 160 million acres of corn and soybeans that mostly go to feed animals and not feed us. And that's like the most inefficient use of resources in the history of humanity. And one of the most destructive ones for the cow itself, for the, for the soil and for our health all around. It's, it's, it's a utter disaster. And, you know, the, that we pay for that with our tax dollars. We support that. We pay for it. We prop it up. We make it happen. And so, you know, if you could come out of this a, a awareness moment where we have time to think about our relationship with food, maybe in a way that we didn't a month ago, you come out of it with, with that, that sense of power. Um, that's why I like the Michael Pollan quote so much because it's empowering and it's so true. It's we vote for our politicians, you know, once a year or once every four years, our president Well, hell man, we vote three times a day. And if we're conscious about it and willing to spend a little bit extra, willing to go to the trouble of going out of our way, uh, will affect change more than more than policy uh, from up high. I think this is bottom up. Uh, we love movements that are bottom up, and this is bottom up because it's so so uh, detailed in the in the every meal counts towards a vote, and that that you know it's but it, but at the same time it's like around the world thing. It's top down too. That's why restaurants are so important because restaurants set a culture, and and as as what's to me is the most destructive of this moment is that it that it that it destroyed 
this this culture of this connection to farms and where your food comes from and and the kinds of things that je- chefs just trumpeted and 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 to make us look like better chefs because we're the better flavors were there's no question about it it was good for us uh, but that kind of thing getting lost and I don't know that that's going to come back with the kind of flair that it had and and as we were saying to that that food executive I talked to him a month ago he was looking at his retirement He's now looking at investing and that that's a, that's a, a world change that. You know, I, I hope I hope doesn't stick. So man, we'll talk again and see where we are in a couple of months and hopefully have a have a, a less dystopian outlook <laughs> than I've presented to you and your listeners. Yeah, well, I, I think we're all hoping and thinking it's got to get better. I was talking to a friend yesterday named Julia Rubin, who works on uh, sex trafficking issues and particularly as a as a. a applies to the uh, the degree to which that's either supported or not supported and child labor I should say as well by the you know our, our kind of uh, our corporate supply chains and she said similar version of what you said every time we open our wallet we vote for the world that we want and you know it's the same thing we've got to we've got to really recognize the responsibility we have when we make these choices well uh, I gotta let you go because you've, you've got a little girl that's got to learn to ride a bike by Sunday uh, and that's important. And she's counting on you. And I'd say the rest of us are counting on you to help uh, help us think through and be a guide as events unfold as to what kind of uh, world we want to have in terms of our food and our farms. Well, thank you. You've done so much to you know inspire a generation of chefs around good work and the advocacy and the role that we can play outside of uh, the four walls of a kitchen. So I thank you for that. And uh, let's work together to see a future that you know, our kids can can really shine in. Well, thank you, Dan. We've been talking to Dan Barber, Blue Hill at Stone Barns, and also the author of a really important book called The Third Plate. It's really a pleasure to talk to you, Dan, even under these difficult circumstances. I'm so grateful for you taking the time. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Uh, you can go to our website at passionandstir.com and find our other episodes and you can rate us and rank us and share this conversation with others. Thanks to the team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign and our producer at District Productive, uh, Paul Whittle, Woody, for making this possible. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.